Genesis chapter 2 through chapter 3 is where we'll be um, this morning. Today I have a pretty easy sermon. I, I don't think I have to do a lot of convincing uh, that the world is flawed. Uh, we talked a lot about the current events last week and we addressed some of the issues of race that we see in our country and obviously that's another example of the fall. And if you need more examples of the fall, one of the current events that showed up this week was Pokemon Go. I think that's a direct example of the fall of man, uh, and it's proof that the world has issues. As we saw this past week in our office, little kids around our office location with their iPhones out, which I'm wondering how in the world do these kids get iPhones, but that's another story. Um, But on a serious note, I think at times there is this pervasive idea in the church today that Jesus died for us just because we were just kind of bad. And the idea is that man is basically good, and we just need parts of us fixed. However, the problem with that is that type of teaching is not only goes against what Scripture says, but it also minimizes the gospel. We didn't need a Savior because we were already good. We needed a Savior because we are bad. We're messed up at birth. And this is important for us to see. And that's that's the big idea that I want us to see is seeing it that way is not only biblical, but it also helps us to see the gospel in a new and beautiful light. And so last week we looked at creation. And the big idea that we walked away with was that that we as human beings are created in God's image. It's called, we, we use the Latin term, the imago Dei. And everything that God has created is for us so that we would enjoy, so that we would then in turn enjoy him. And in other words, everything that ha- has been created is not meant to bring us ultimate joy, but rather to point us to the one who will bring us ultimate joy. And I told y'all last week, a great example of that was Pelican snow cones. And like 300 of you went to Pelicans this week. And next time you go, just mention my name. Just saying. That might help. Um, But today, we're going to look at the fall. And the fall is basically when man and woman chose to love creation more than the creator. And we're going to look at how, from the, very, from, the, from the first moment that this took place, how this led us to a continual pattern of slavery in this thing called sin. And of course, there's good news that follows. That's why we have a series called Redemption. But notice with me, if you will, Genesis chapter 2, we'll start in verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And in that day, the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, there's this notion out there that some will claim that there are two Genesis accounts. There's a Genesis account in Genesis chapter 1. There's a Genesis account in Genesis chapter 2. However, that is not the case. Uh, We know that because of the genre of chapter 1. The genre of chapter 1 is Moses is writing this sort of 
poetic rhythm of God's created order. If you read Genesis 1, for instance, in Hebrew, it actually sounds like a song. God created this, and he saw that it was good. God created this, and he saw that it was good. God created this, and he saw that it was good. And so he moves from that rhythm in chapter 2 to um, chapter 1 to then chapter 2 where he gets into more of the specific details of his creation. And one of the specific details that he hones in on in chapter 2 is how, why did God create man? And then how is then man to function in his relationship with his creator? And so then he continues in verse 5. He says, when No bush of the field was yet in the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. That's very important for you to see that. No man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils and breathed in the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put man who he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God had made up, made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. There's God's provision. The tree of life that was in the midst of the garden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And so verse 5, we see um, that man was to cultivate the land. Now, obviously, We will get into a lot of this in our marriage family seminar on the 27th. Very important that you come to that because we'll untangle some of these things here that we see in the passage. But uh, notice what it says. The text tells us that God breathed life. And last week what we talked about when we talked about creation, we said that uh, this is what the Spirit of God does. The Spirit of God breathes life where there is no life. And so this is what the Spirit of God did. The Spirit of God breathed life into man, and so man was given life. And if you dip down in verse 15, it says, The Lord God took man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden But of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely, what's the word? Die. So what you have, God has created everything in perfect order. Everything that he created was good. In the image of God, then, he creates man. That's Genesis 1. In Genesis 2, he tells you, okay, this is how man was created. God breathed life into man. And then... You put man and woman in the garden, and what we saw at the end of chapter 1, what we're going to see in chapter 2, is that they are both naked and they're unashamed. And so you have then every single thing around them is given so that they can enjoy that would then lead to them enjoying their creator and looking to him and worshiping him. But the rest of the world, so this beautiful garden is placed for Adam and Eve to enjoy. And the rest of the world, listen, is rugged and untamed. 
And man's role and his responsibility and the way that he would worship God is continue in God's creative order, which means he's to make the rest of the world look like that beautiful garden because he is an image bearer of God. But it just shows you that ADD existed before the fall. Because what does he have? One verse to memorize. Verse 16 and 17 of Genesis chapter 2. One verse. You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge and good and evil. You shall not eat, for in the day you eat, you shall surely die. That's the only verse that man has to memorize. So if he's getting up with his coffee in the morning, he wants to have devotions with his wife, that's the only devotion that you can have. It's the only verse. If you're a Bible, if you had a Bible then, if man was to make a Bible out of leaves or whatever he would make it out of, this would be the only verse. This is the only commandment that God has given. So it's not this vague commandment. It's not this general commandment like have dignity. It's not anything like that. It's don't eat of this tree. There's no black and white. It's, it's, it's black and white. It's not this gray area. And then we see in verse 18 that this is the command that this man is supposed to know, and then he's also supposed to teach it to the one that God has given him. Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man shall be alone. I will make him a helper Fit for him. Notice this is before the fall. God said a man needed a helper. Ladies are supposed to say amen there. That's what I was waiting for. Um, Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a great uh, a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of the ribs, uh, took one of his ribs and closed it in the place where, with, with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, for this reason is what Moses is saying, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one Flesh, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Before the fall of man, he knew that he needed a helper. Man has this responsibility. He's to name all the livestock. But when he saw a naked woman, he said, that one's mine. That's what happened. All right, I'm not making this up. We just read it. And here you have man and woman who were naked and they were unashamed, which is beautiful because it just shows that intimacy between a man and a woman existed before the fall. Not only did God give us this created order, but God gave us companionship 
to enjoy husband and wife together so that we can enjoy companionship and intimacy to one another again that in and of itself is not to be worshiped but it's to for us to enjoy each other so that we would then in turn enjoy our creator but then we're going to see the problem that happens between man and woman genesis chapter 3 verse 1 now the serpent was more crafty than any other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Isn't this interesting how Satan attacks, questioning what God has already said? That's exactly what Satan still does today. I know we, I, I joke a lot about every time the sound booth goes out, you hear churches say, well, Satan's back there in the sound booth again, or the devil's trying to keep us from doing what we're supposed to be doing this morning. Or, My car broke down. The devil is trying to, you know, mess up our day and trying to throw us off, or it rained while we were at the beach on vacation. See, Satan's trying to bring us down again, and we just think, Satan's always out there playing tricks and messing with lights and messing with the weather. Let me just say this. This is how Satan operates. He's not out there. He's not a nine-year-old playing tricks on us, all right? Satan loves to put question marks where God puts periods. He likes to say, did God actually say that? Or did Jesus actually say this? Or does the Bible actually teach this? It's just enough to throw us off and cause us to, or tempt us to disobey God. And then if we dip, dip down in verse 2, this is what the woman said. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. Is that there in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 2? No. But here she is. She's adding to what God says. If you look in uh, Genesis 2, 16 through 17, God never said that to the man, but she added this part. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, this shows you right off the bat that Adam is not a great Bible teacher, okay? One verse to memorize for their family. One verse to have in your house posted up. One verse that you're supposed to remember, and then she says, neither shall you touch it. It's not in there. It's not in there. And then this brings up a theological problem. Okay, so why did God put the tree in the garden if he knew Adam and Eve would take it? Is it? He's not caught off guard by these events. It wasn't like God said, oh my gosh, I had no idea that they were going to do that. I just put it out there just to see what was happening. And I've even heard people say, well, this is like putting a loaded gun on the coffee table of your home and then telling your kids not to play with it. But let me tell you this, this is not heavy-handed. This is not God playing a trick on his kids. No, this is not, because remember, every single thing that man and woman have was given to them by a wonderful, gracious God so that they would enjoy. So why did God put the tree in the garden if he knew that they would take it? Why would he do that? Well, there's lots of ways one could answer 
And ultimately, the Bible doesn't give us a direct answer on that problem. But here's what I would say. God is, from the very beginning, showing that obedience to him brings joy. Obedience to him brings joy. And what did Adam and Eve choose? It says this in verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you, shall not, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that uh, the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. Are you kidding me? And he ate. Then the eyes of both were open. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig, fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and the wife, they hid themselves in the presence of God. Good luck with that. Among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? So much I can cover here. Come to the marriage and family seminar to get all of it. But here's a couple of things. God, Satan tempted Eve with the idea of idolatry. God knows that you will be like him. God knows that it will make you wise. And that is what Satan does. He likes to question what God has already said, and he likes to sell us on the idea of idolatry. You can be like God. And her husband then, the other problem is her husband then was with her. Here he is standing there passively going, oh, that's the bird I named yesterday. There's that deer. There's Jerome, the deer that I named yesterday. And he's just totally not in the picture at all until she handed it to her husband who was with her. And he's like, oh, cool. I'll take that too. So I want you to get this picture, men specifically. Well, again, we'll talk about this in the family seminar. Shameless plug. Again, you have this man passively standing there as his wife is butchering the truth of God's word. And he's not stepping in at all. So it's his passivity that led them to sin. And then what happens? Well, they became worldly. And I grew up in a um, small rural Baptist church in eastern North Carolina. And my understanding of worldliness is getting tattoos, hanging out in a bar, watching rated R movies, listening to hip-hop or rock and roll, Tupac or Weezer. That's how I was worldliness. But let me just say that worldliness is when you choose creation over the creator. It's any time that you choose to indulge in creation over the creator. That's worldliness. But every sense biblically of, of a definition, that's worldliness. First John chapter 
2, verse 16. He says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eye, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but of the world. It's any time that we indulge in the creative, in God's created order rather than Him. And this is exactly what we saw with Eve. She had the desire of the eyes, she saw that the fruit was good. Desire of the flesh, she was hungry. The pride of life, she wanted to be like God. And this is what Satan does to us. This is what Satan tried to do with Jesus in Matthew 4. You want to go back and read it later on. Matthew 4, what you have is Satan tempting Jesus for 40 days in the wilderness. What does he do? He tempts him with food. He tempts him with hunger. He tempts him with land. He tempts him with idolatry. You can get out of this thing that God has called you to, and you could be greater than anyone on this earth right now. It's exactly what he does. And so Satan tries to tempt Jesus with something that Jesus has created. Isn't that interesting? And here's the thing. Satan does that because he's perverse. Satan cannot create. He can only distort. He can only use something that God has already created to distract us from our creator. And that's what happens here in Genesis 3. And then in verse 10, we pick up. It says, And he said, I heard the sound of the voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, It's the woman whom you gave to me to be with me, and she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you've done? The woman said, "Uh, it's the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and on the dust you shall eat in in all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. So what you have, the very first part, it's a blame game between husbands and wife. And then we see the problem here is, uh, is now relationships have not been the same ever since. A perfect example of this is what happens to Adam and Eve's kids in the very next chapter. You have them having, their, we hear about their first two Cain and Abel, what happens? Cain is jealous of his brother Abel, and what does he do? He kills them. Another example of that is our own kids, if you have kids. None of our kids are perfect. Our kids are born in sin. I don't care how cute they are, okay? All you new moms and new dads in there, you're like, oh, he's so beautiful, he's an angel. Wait, okay? There's this thing called two-year-olds. You'll learn if you haven't already. When they wake up in the middle of the night screaming, that's the fall, okay? You probably already know that. But I never did I have to teach my son, if you don't get your way, you should physically harm someone. I didn't have to do that. That was already in both my boys, unfortunately. If you don't get your way, you should throw yourself on the floor, and kick and scream. I did not have to teach them that. I did that when I was a kid, but they didn't see that, okay? I don't do that as an adult. They do that on their own. Why? It's because he said, cursed are 
all the generations behind you. I will put an enmity between you and the woman, her offspring and your offspring. And and here's the great thing about Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15 is actually the very first mention, even though the name is not there, of a redeemer. God would punish Satan. From the seed of the woman, there would be one who would crush the head of the serpent. And the one who crushes the head of the serpent would have his heel bruised. And I believe that that is absolutely about Jesus. In fact, Romans 16, verse 20, um, Paul mentions that God of peace will crush Satan's head. And that's exactly what Moses was talking about. Little did Adam and Eve know, little did the serpent know, and little did people for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years know until Jesus actually came and crushed the head of the serpent when his heel was bruised on the cross. And so here there are tons of examples that I could use about how no one's marriage is perfect because of this, how, no, how there's relational tension with us, how, there's, how we give in to sin and addiction. But the point I want to try to make this morning is how greatly we are all affected by the fall thus leading to a need for the serpent's head to be crushed and the Savior's heel to be bruised. Now, there are some who say that the characters in the Old Testament are fictional. And I have to say that, I've even heard some say that Adam was a fictitious character to teach us about making good choices. Now, obviously, I disagree with that strongly because, first of all, you have a problem because you look ahead in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 3, where it talks about the genealogy of Jesus. What happens in that genealogy? He actually goes back to Adam. He wants to show you that Jesus is directly related to Adam. Why would he do that if Adam was a fictitious character? The other problem with that is, is, is the whole reason why we're doing this sermon is Because of Adam, you and I have original sin. Because of our very first parents, Adam and Eve, we are born with the curse of sin. And this is what Paul captures in Romans 5, verses 18 through 19. He says, Therefore, as one trespass led to a condemnation for all men, so One act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. And so by the one man's disobedience, the many were made righteous. What is he saying? Because of Adam and Eve's sin, our first parents, we are then born with the curse of sin. We are represented by Adam. Adam represents mankind. It's a very important word. He is our representation. And this theme from Genesis chapter 3 is going to carry all throughout the Old and New Testament how there is none righteous, no, not one. I don't care how you look at babies when they're born, how you look at mankind. We're not basically good. We're not. That's why you have locks on your doors and on your cars. That's why you have security. That's why you have passwords on your computer. It's because man is not basically good. 
And this theme, I want to show you throughout Scripture, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Scripture that I could use this morning to show you how totally and utterly depraved we are. But let me just name a few. Psalm 51 verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. It's pretty clear. Psalm 58 verse 3, The wicked are estranged from the wound, and they go astray from birth, speaking lies. Psalm 143, verse 2, enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. And you're like, well, that's just David. He was real moody. Well, okay, well, let's just talk about what Jesus said about us. Mark chapter 7, verse 21, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these things come from within and they defile a person. That's pretty clear. Paul, the Apostle Paul says it in Galatians 5, the works of the flesh. He talks about the works of the flesh and he basically repeats the same list that Jesus just listed. This is what we, you and I, are made of at birth. We are all guilty of sin because of Adam's sin. And you'll say, well, if you have an analytical mind, you do have or have had a problem with that. Like, why do I have to face the consequences of some idiot thousands of years ago? Or maybe millions of years, we don't know. Why do I have to face the consequences of this guy? Here's why. When we sin, we sin twice over, which means we sin because we're sinners, and that was Adam's choice, but we sin also, uh, we're sinners because we sin, and that's our choice. And so before we blame Adam for everything, ask yourself this question, anyone here want to say you've never sinned? When you get pulled over for speeding, you can't say, That was Adam's fault. That will not stand up in court. Everyone has sinned. Everyone has sinned willingly. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 1 John chapter 1 says, if you say that you are without sin, you are a liar and a heretic. James chapter 1 says, each one is tempted when he is... uh, When he is given by his own desires, he is dragged away by his own desires. And so we sin because we're sinners. That is what we do. And how is this good news this morning? Well, it equals the playing field, for one thing. None of us are greater than the other. All of us are sinners in need of a Savior. You were not condemned to hell for a specific sin. You were condemned to hell because you were cursed to sin. And this should create in us a compassion and a patience for those around us who sin differently than we do. Bill Yancey says Christians get very angry toward other Christians who sin differently than they do. I love that quote because it's so true. But if we were to understand total depravity, as we've just laid out in Scripture, that 
man is not basically good. We're basically sinners in need of a savior. We began to look at the world differently because we begin to see others who sin differently. And we say, man, that person needs Jesus, just like how I need Jesus, or just like how I've received Jesus' grace that has been given to me. And so you are not a sinner because you sin. Rather, you sin because you are a sinner. And here's the good news in this. We are sinners because we are represented by Adam. But guess what the Bible offers? Scripture and the gospel offer this. You no longer have to be represented by Adam. You can have a new representative. And that's what we see in one of my favorite passages of all time. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. He says this. The Apostle Paul says this about Jesus. For our sake, he made him, meaning Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What happened? There. This is called, the Martin Luther used to call this the great exchange. Jesus Christ, who was born of a virgin, which means he did not carry the curse that you and I carry. He was born perfect. He was tempted in every single way as you and I were tempted. Yet he did not sin. And so what did he do on the cross? He said, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus Christ lived the life that we should have lived, and then he died the death that we were condemned to die, and he took on all the sins of those that the Father would draw to himself upon himself on the cross. He absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf. And so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So that now when God looks at us, he sees the perfect work of of the Savior, of his Son, Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. Is there a greater story? I don't think so. Is there a more wonderful truth? No. Jesus became sin on our behalf so that we are no longer represented by Adam. We're represented by Christ. So how do we get to that point? How do we fight our sin? How do we fight the curse of Adam? We cannot do it on our own. We cannot work to do it on our own because as what God says the Old Testament, he says, our works are filthy rags. We cannot attain the righteousness of God on our own. The only way that we can do it is by repenting of our sins and believing in the finished work of Christ and asking Jesus to save us. And that is when, when, we, when we feel the Spirit of God drawing us for self, we actually realize that what Jesus did on the cross that applied to us. And then that becomes enough because we're no longer represented by Adam, we're represented by Christ. And so I think this is important for us this morning. 
I know it is, by the way. I don't think I know it's important for us this morning. Because I think sometimes we believe that Jesus doesn't love us right now, but he loves some future version of us that has it all figured out. Anybody ever think about that? Well, Jesus doesn't love me right now. He loves like the 45-year-old Ben Tugwell that has it all figured out, right? By the way, when you're 45, you're not going to have it all figured out. You can ask the people who are older than 45 in this room. They don't have it all figured out either. But we always get this mindset, okay, right before I retire, like I'm going to be this wise old man who's going to have all these biblical answers. And then, you know, I'm, hopefully by the grace of God, I'll still be my wife. And we'll have all these wonderful stories to tell and pass on to others. And then God will then be finally pleased with me. Like he loves this future version of me that has it all figured out. But let me just say this. Jesus did not die for a future version of you. He died for the sinner that you were at birth. Jesus meets you where you are. Jesus didn't die for you because you were kind of good. Jesus died for you because you were a sinner in need of a savior. And I want to keep saying that to you over and over and over again so that you would just see God's incredible love for you in that while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. And so my hope is that you would cling, that we would cling to the gospel this morning. And that Jesus Christ, and then live in the reality that Jesus Christ is your representative for those of you who are in Christ. So if you're asking yourself, is Jesus my representative? Let me, let me ask you this. Are you born again? You have the religious man in John's gospel who comes to Jesus in the middle of the night. And he says, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, you must be born again. It's not about what you do. It's about what Christ has done in your place. Repent and believe in the gospel. For the gospel is our only hope. Let us pray. Father, Thank you for your precious son who lived the life that we should have lived, who died the death that we were condemned to die. And I pray, Father, that we would rest in the gospel this morning, that we would rest in your sovereign work that you came and you died in our place. And so, Father, I pray that we wouldn't get in the mindset that you love some future version of us, that we would actually realize that you love us right now and who we are because of what you've done on the cross. So we wouldn't get in our mindset of religiosity and all the things that we have to do to obtain the favor of God. There's nothing that we can do to obtain your favor. It's all about what Christ has done. So God, would you help us to rest in that truth this morning? Would you help us to embrace the gospel? And from embracing the gospel, Lord, we would then desire obedience to you because obedience to you brings joy. And that joy then leads to our compassion for others to share the gospel to a lost and dying world. Lord, would you help us to be that church who proclaims this gospel clearly and lives it out in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.